0: The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance in Security on Federal News Radio.
1: Hi, this is Lenny Kaiser with ClearanceJobs.com, and welcome to this episode of Security, Clearance, and Security on Federal News Radio. Today is a real privilege for me to be able to talk to Evan Lesser, the founder and president of ClearanceJobs.com. So obviously I'm a little little nervous because Evan is my boss's boss, so there's a lot of pressure here. But when it comes to the security clearance process, when it comes to what I really like to think about is the marketplace and community of cleared professionals. Evan really is an an expert on that. And anybody who's had the opportunity to hear Evan brief or talk, which is something he regularly does for clearance jobs customers, he really has a handle on the market dynamics affecting the cleared workforce. And I think that's why when you look at clearance jobs, it's really grown as a great community for cleared professionals, because he has such insight into the market realities facing folks in the national security workforce. So since it's 2023, we're starting a new year, that would be a great time to chat with Evan a little bit about the security clearance marketplace. He talked a little bit towards the end of the year, Evan, about how this could be the hardest year yet in security clearance hiring, which obviously makes anybody listening to this who works in security clearance hiring a little nervous cuz 2022, the years prior have certainly been challenging. So kind of what market realities have led you to even get a little bit more anticipatory for what yeah, we're Yeah, and, and thanks in for the, the introduction,
2: Lindy. I think it's not hyperbole to say that this year is going to be the toughest year for security cleared recruiting and and we definitely don't make that proclamation without a lot of forethought. So we've been in the clear recruiting business for a little over 20 years. And we're always taking a look at these different factors that come into play and try to figure out it's going to be a candidate's market, is going to be an employer's market, what are the micro and, and macro factors that we have to take a look at. And honestly, towards this end of twenty twenty two, we started seeing everything kind of come into alignment that had us a bit worried. And that's really why we've we've kind of made that declaration that this year is going to be the hardest. And the factors that have come into play uh, it's kind of like a puzzle being put together and when you see the whole picture you kind of get it but some of those puzzle pieces are first is the supply and demand of cleared professionals so the supply of dod cleared people is roughly 4.7 million and that is the one bright point so if you think back to a number of years ago when was the last time dod claimed 4.7 million security cleared people it was roughly 2012 2013 or so and the numbers went down year after year and Thankfully, we've seen a trend over the last couple of years of those numbers picking up. There's definitely a discrepancy about the number of people who are in access versus out of access. But when we take a look at the overall population of cleared people, 4.7 million is the one bright spot. The problem is that the world of work is changing. More and more people are, are wanting to work from home, which is definitely difficult in our industry. More and more people are retiring or retiring early. An increasing number of workers are deciding to kind of make ends meet by doing a lot of small jobs rather than one single traditional you know, employer. So the world of work is changing, and that's definitely having an impact. Another thing that's come into play is the demand for cleared people is just off the charts. Take a look at the DOD budget. You know, it it is a record DOD budget, which means record contracts going out, which means record demand for security cleared people. So the demand for cleared professionals is far outpacing the supply of cleared talent. Another issue that we've been taking a look at, another piece of the puzzle, is the fact that when we survey cleared professionals, we found out that more than half of cleared workers, 53%, are either likely or very likely to change jobs in the next year. So candidates understand that they're in control of this market. They understand that they can hop employers and usually get a bump in salary, and they're definitely taking advantage of that. So those backfills are also creating a lot of demand. To wrap up, we also take a look at clearance processing times. Kudos to the government. They've made great strides at reducing the number of days for a final end-to-end secret and top-secret clearance. Last time I looked at the numbers was, I guess, around Q3. It was around 95 days for a secret and 121 days for a top-secret. And those numbers are improved, which is great, but they're still not low enough for most employers to take advantage of them. Last but not least the number of workers that are employed. The survey that we recently did of security cleared professionals showed that 92% of security cleared workers label themselves as employed. Now they are passively interested in open opportunities, but that means that only 8% of security cleared workers said that they are unemployed and actively looking. Put the puzzle together and you can see all these factors are coming into play to make 2023 the most difficult year ever for security cleared recruiting.
1: Whoa. (laughs) we are on kind of this, I don't know, this steady shift too, because I do You kind of brought up the point that it hasn't always been this way. I remember we used to have the dynamic where we had more candidates, more recession timeframe. It's getting harder and harder to remember that. And I'm not sure if we'll ever get back to that dynamic. I think people who are waiting for, you know, we keep even talking about the tech hiring space and all of that, but I don't see a shift happening that really makes things quote unquote better or the hiring process easier. I do Do like you have any thoughts on that? Our
2: our 20 years of being in this industry and covering security cleared recruiting and the 20 years that clearance jobs has been around. And there are certain points that stick out as being maybe kinda normal, but it seems like this industry is either feast or famine. It's either black or white. You know, 2013 was the last time I can remember in which it was the market was flipped. So in 2013, don't forget, there was um, definitely factors in place that kind of flipped things. So there were lots and lots and lots of candidates in 2013. There was a sequester. There were, you know, budget woes. But in 2013, there were lots of candidates and not nearly enough jobs to fill them. Now it's the exact opposite. And it seems like this industry is just, you know, always going to the extreme. There's never a a normal. I guess if I had to think about a semi-normal time period, maybe 2016 or so, there was at least somewhat of a balance between the number of open jobs and the number of available candidates. But it seems like for the most part, yeah, it's either feast or famine, black or white, you know, it's it's one extreme going to the next, and and that's where we're at right now. So I, I agree with you. I don't I don't see anything on the horizon that would state it's ever going to get back to quote unquote normal, or it's going to ever get back to being an employer's market. I think if this this current dynamic is going to last for for some time period.
1: Yeah, I think that the roller coaster analogy that we've used at Clearance Jobs becomes more and more the norm, because I think it is just a kind of a volatile market. And you can be doing, you know, maybe somewhat okay as a company or even an agency, but you really need to stay engaged and stay active. And that's one of the great things about Clearance Jobs. So as a platform that, you know, helps enable hiring for both companies and government agencies and for candidates to find and connect with positions and careers and grow their career networks, the brand and the company has really been committed to innovating as a platform, which is not always the case for the government hiring process, as you know, we kind of tend to see and cover and write about. Clearly, you're focused on security clearance hiring, but you're not just kind of following the default of like. You know, maybe the government saying, hey, we have to take what we get or, you know, only the strong survive in the application process. Why do you think it's important even for the government in hiring for personnel to really care about innovating and talent management and finding the best? I think it's mostly because
2: of this extreme imbalance between supply and demand. If things were more normal, then normal rules would apply. But the more extreme the supply and demand imbalance gets, the more that employers have to change their tactics in order to attract and engage and and hire security cleared professionals. And and I'll give you an example. If 92% of security cleared people that we poll on clearance jobs are already employed, fairly happy in their work, fairly happy with their pay, but they are willing to listen to employers about new opportunities, that means that every time that an employer finds a security cleared professional, more than eight out of 10 cleared candidates are going to say, I'm, I'm already employed. Why, why should I talk to you? Why should I listen to you? What are you going to offer me? So it's really kind of turned things on end. And, and one of the things that we've really pushed on heavily over the last year and we will be doing this year is branding. And you think about the fact that if most candidates are already employed, what's it going to take to convert a candidate from just considering an open position to actually applying for it? What we have kind of found out through our research is that there's, there's four factors that will help move a candidate from considering a job to actually converting and actually applying for it. And those four things are culture, reputation, the employer's compensation plan, and what type of advancement can happen at that employer. And regardless of whether it's a government agency or a federal contracting firm or a search firm or a college and university that has cleared positions, they all have to try to think about from a candidate's perspective, what's going to make that passive candidate, which is the vast majority of candidates, what's going to make them actually say, you know what, I'm willing to spend the time to fill out this job application form. And I'm I'm willing to spend the time to, uh, to, to start to invest in this. And if an employer can think about culture, reputation, compensation, advancement, and start to answer those branding questions for candidates, that's how they're going to get candidates to convert.
1: I love that you mentioned that. And that's definitely like, that that was a key point I wanted to make and talk about because you've touched so much on employer branding over the past several years. I don't see a lot of founders and presidents of companies doing that. How did you get the insight to say, hey, this is something that even from my level within the organization, I need to be talking about branding and pushing that out to customers and folks in our space. What tipped your hat, I guess, to say, like, hey, yes, employer branding is key. And I'm sure. Need to and, and we'll
2: definitely come this. back to innovation in just a second because how you convey employer branding to candidates, it definitely matters. So the mechanism that you actually get the branding out absolutely matters. It's not just. The fact that content is king, it's the, the the delivery of that content is really important as well. But what kind of tipped our hat to this is we saw the writing on the wall and, and we understood that if the vast majority of candidates are passive, that it would take employers, recruiters and recruiting teams work to convert those passive candidates. And one of the things that we did back in 2021 that's really kind of changed our perspective on this is that we did a lot of research around converting audiences, not just in recruiting, but in other areas, too. We, we took a, a hard look at retail sales. And it was really interesting in 2021 because retail sales were down. Um, granted, there was, uh, uh, you know, we're coming out of the, the pandemic or, or the pandemic, I guess, in 2021 was still in full swing. But things were starting to wind down. But there were talks of recession People were not buying as much. And when we took a look at retail sales, we found a huge amount of parallels between converting a buyer who's considering a product and converting a candidate who's considering a new open role. And there are definitely factors you have to take a look at. And when we took a look at retail sales, we found that if you could really focus in on that consideration phase you are going to be much more likely to convert a passive person who may be kind of interested in a product or service to actually buy that product or service same for recruiting if you've got a candidate who's kind of considering an open position that's where you're going to lose them if you don't do that you know don't really invest in branding to the point where you can convert them so we were thinking a whole lot about how to move candidates beyond consideration and conversion and when we talked to cleared candidates especially that were passive we found out that they had four questions that they wanted answered before they would move and actually apply for a job. So the first is culture, and that answers the question, am I gonna fit in with this organization? And every candidate asks that question, maybe not in those terms, but they definitely ask it. And culture and will I fit into this company can be addressed by things like diversity and inclusion, um, how fast your your organization um, speed of change, what are your business ethics? What's your work-life balance? What's the actual physical workplace like? What's the company philosophy? The second is reputation. Reputation answers that question that every single candidate has, especially in the cleared world where they ask, is this employer legitimate? And you can answer that Question by focusing on things like reviews and rankings of your company, awards and recognition, financials, press releases, senior leadership. The third is compensation, and that answers the very elemental question that every candidate has Am I going to get paid fairly? Am I going to be compensated fairly at this employer? And regardless of whether you're a government agency or a large or small contracting firm or a college and university with a government contract, you can focus in on things like salary, benefits, profit share, perks, retirement, reimbursements. Last but not least is advancement. Every candidate asks themselves before they will actually apply for a position, am I gonna actually grow at this employer? And the way that you address that question is you focus on professional development and what technologies your employer uses, company outlook, career growth, and things of that nature. So just by addressing those four things in your employer branding, that's how you're gonna move a candidate beyond consideration. That's how you're gonna get them to convert and actually apply for the job And the more creative you are in your branding, and Lindy, you know about this better than anybody else, you can't just throw out a banner ad and hope for the best. You can't just throw out an article and hope for the best or some type of of, of messaging. You really have to have a concerted, creative effort around the information you put out there. And that's how you're going to get people to convert.
1: I love all of that. You're speaking my love language here, but I wanted to say that because you talked about the mechanism too. And so I want to definitely give you time to touch on that because that obviously is near and dear to my heart because we did have this. I think clearance and Jobs was totally ahead of the curve. You were totally ahead of the curve in terms of building out content as being a key driver for a brand. We've seen a lot of other companies, organizations pick that up, but like you said, it's not necessarily just creating content because we do have such a plethora of content now. Even this is a big issue in the veteran transition community we went from having like not a ton of career resources for veterans to almost having too many folks who don't even know the resources out there. So why is the mechanism important? So there's three things
2: that you have to take a look at when you do branding. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but this is for for the audience. First, you have to take a look at the message. Um, Second, you have to take a look at the method or mechanism. Third, you have to take a look at the targeting. So the message is incredibly important. And this is where content is king, but it's not necessarily just throwing out piece after piece after piece, you really have to tweak the message to the audience that you're trying to attract. One thing I will mention is that the more, I I guess the best way to put it is that if all of your messages are strictly job announcements, you're going to fall flat. You know, 92% of candidates are passive and already employed. Think about those folks because that's the vast majority of who you're targeting. If every message they see is come apply for this job, come apply for this job, come apply for this job, It's going to quickly go in one ear and out the other or in one eye and out the other or whatever it may be. So you really want your messages to be focusing in on what I would call the the soft sell. The hard sell is the job offer. The soft sell is going to be things like getting to know a certain team, um, getting to know a certain location, understanding more about the company, the corporate philosophy, what drives it, what motivates it, talking to your leadership, talking about your hiring process talking about your work-life balance, diversity and inclusion efforts. What's it like to work at the company? Those are much softer, and that's going to be a much better way to create a message that's going to draw people in. If you can do something different in terms of messaging, that's what's going to attract people. So that's the message. The second is the method or the mechanism that you deliver that message. And traditionally, everyone has focused on the stuff that worked 10 years ago, email notifications, banner ads, and things like that. Even those mechanisms are kind of getting long in the tooth these days what is resonating more are live events uh, sharing an experience with a candidate and that could be a webinar a guest speaker a book club a shared sporting event a shared gaming event some type of of shared activity live events are definitely where it's at pre-recorded is is okay But live definitely has more engagement. Thinking about content like a podcast, video content, photo montage, you know, animated gifs, funny, interesting, engaging content. That's the kind of stuff. Those kind of delivery mechanism that's going to make people kind of sit up and take notice. And then third, after message and mechanism, is targeting. These days, targeting is absolutely critical because every email platform has artificial intelligence and is smart enough to know spam when it comes in. Every candidate now has the ability to block someone who's sending a message if that message is not targeted. So think back to seven, eight, nine years ago, it was all about how many people can I blast my message to? These days, it's all about how much can I target my message? And if you think about current marketing systems. It's all about targeting. So 50 targeted candidates or 500 targeted candidates is far better than 50,000 or 5,000 untargeted. Because as soon as you send a message that's not targeted to a candidate, they're either going to block you or artificial intelligence will block the message before they even see it. Message, method, and targeting are the three things that uh, employers who are doing recruitment branding want to focus in on.
1: Yeah, well, and I love that you highlight that because the targeting is key in the national security space. You know, as you talk about the, the supply demand issues, I think a lot of the recruiters and hiring managers know that there's just only so many folks with that skill set. So it is a total waste of your time to try to be targeting a group that's outside of that. So I want to talk a little bit about kind of the, the government hiring process. So obviously, Federal News Radio, we know we have a, a a demographic of folks who are tied to the federal space. I always like to highlight, you know, USA Jobs is out there, obviously, but not every government job is posted on USA Jobs. One of the things I've loved seeing is that clearance jobs is really growing in the number of government agencies and folks that are using clearance jobs to source for talent. Why is that important in the government to not just kind of, for not government to do the post and pray thing and just be posting their jobs on USA Jobs and kind of what options are out there? For yeah, and, and that's a great jobs.
2: point. Think about it. The current dynamic is that the vast majority of people with clearance are already employed. How many people that are already employed want to sit and fill out a gigantic job application form, knowing that historically filling out job application forms, they didn't hear back from anybody? So there's definitely an imbalance. And I think one of the problems with job application is that you're kind of having to go around from first base to home plate in one shot. A job application is you raising your hand and saying, I want this job. But if most candidates are passive and employed, they may be interested in a job, but they may not be willing to go all the way around. So a couple of things that we've done on clearance jobs is that we've made it easier for employers, uh, government agencies, recruiting firms, recruiters to connect and just start talking with candidates to do that soft sell to see if the candidates are interested enough to actually engage with a recruiter more directly. So I think government agencies and contracting firms really have to be focused on that soft sell and be focused on things that will get a candidate to the application phase. And application is, you know, far down the chain. What you want to do first is you need to get candidates to trust you first. Then you need to get candidates talking to you. Then you need to learn more about the candidate and figure out what's going to push their buttons, what's going to actually make them spend the time to apply. So I think that's the reason that USA Jobs, there's a bit of a disconnect between what USA Jobs ask people to do, which is apply for jobs, and the fact that most candidates are already employed and not interested in, in going through that job application process. So Clearance Jobs kind of bridges that gap. One of the things that we are launching in just a number of weeks on the Clearance Jobs Marketplace is something called Expressed Interest. And that is going to directly allow candidates on every single job posting out there with one click to simply raise their hand and let the employer or recruiter behind that job know that that candidate is interested in talking more. So it's a signal. It's essentially them raising their hand and saying, hey, check me out. I'm interested in the position. I may not be ready to apply for the job yet, but I'm definitely interested and want to talk further. So we're very excited about expressed interest. And I think it's going to be another tool in the arsenal that both government agencies and defense contracting firms can use to gauge a candidate's interest and figure out who they should be talking to. So it's definitely all about innovation and trying to take things to the next step, because until this marketplace shifts and there are more active job seekers Job applications are just not going to be the way to engage, attract, and hire candidates.
1: I love it. Yeah. I think if USA Jobs had even a 10th of the capability of clearancejobs.com, our our federal hiring market would would certainly be different. So government agencies out there who have those hiring authorities and options and who aren't using clearance jobs, it seems like a no-brainer to me. And I'm looking forward to the day when they <laughs> bring us on to consult and overhaul the USA Jobs system. Evan.
2: Seriously. Yeah. It's, it's, it's time. It's got to be overhauled because if an employer thinks like they did ten years ago, they're just not they're gonna come up short. Yes, absolutely. Well,
1: thank you so much, Evan Lesser, founder and president of ClearanceJobs.com for joining us to talk about the current cleared hiring market and environment. So if you want more on this topic, we are producing a ton of content about the market realities and about employer branding and tools and, and all of that stuff. So visit us over at clearancejobs.com and thank you again so much, Evan, for all of
2: your time today. Great to talk with you, Lindy.
3: Welcome back. I am attorney Sean Bigley, and I'm here with my co-host, Lindy Kaiser. And we're talking this segment about what I would term the alcohol made me do it. And this is something that, you know, I think we see all the time, both of us, where somebody, you know, got themselves into some sort of trouble. They used drugs or they got into some domestic violence situation or you name it. And the excuse or the defense is, well, I was drinking at the time. And so, you know, the question is, well, does that mitigate or does that actually make things worse?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, those Doha cases that they publish are the gift that keeps on giving because you see the folks, how they try to write or justify themselves out of a situation. And we find that oftentimes, whether it's like domestic uh, assault, even a workplace incident, and they blame, you know, alcohol for it. And I think the blame game is just generally not usually a winning legal strategy. I, I'll be curious to get your take later. But it just because it shows a lack of personal responsibility, right? And the security clearance process is different than a legal court of law. And they really are looking at your personal reliability and trustworthiness. So whether you blame your spouse for something or a coworker or your alcohol issues, I think that actually reflects more poorly on the individual unless then they took proactive steps and got alcohol and substance abuse treatment for that and then can show a real, real change in behavior. But I unfortunately see the other side of it where it seems like folks will just say like, oh, yeah, I was, you know, I was drinking at the time I did X, Y, Z. And that's why. But unless it's tied to really getting help, and accepting personal responsibility and not blaming the alcohol, saying like I was just making poor life choices at that time, and this is why I did this. Because um, otherwise, yeah, the the alcohol is just a symptom of a general issue of lack of reliability and trustworthiness at that point. And in in my experience, um, I think it it reflects negatively and does not seem to actually help the applicant with their with their clearance chances. Is that what you've seen? Or
3: yeah, I so I think you hit on the key caveat to all of this which is the the unless you you know went out and got help or you know took ownership of it and so you know these are very case specific issues for us in our practice there are times where you know somebody has done something dumb and they were drunk and we look at it and say okay well you know the the alcohol may actually mitigate it if we can show for example that you weren't you know normally a heavy drinker but for whatever reason in this particular instance you you know drank a little bit more than you anticipated or realized and then you know you did something dumb and it's never going to happen again we've seen that fact pattern come up and you know sometimes we can, you know, get evidence in the form of character testimony and things like that that no, you know, this person is not a heavy drinker, they're a total lightweight or a teetotaler or whatever. And you know, on this one occasion, they over imbibed and they just weren't able to handle their alcohol. So that can be mitigating. We also see cases where somebody has done something really egregious and it's a wake-up call and they finally realize, like, hey, I've got a problem. I need to get some help. I need to go to rehab or counseling or you know, get into AA or or all of the above. And if they do that, and they really take ownership, and there's been enough of a passage of time to show that they're making good progress. So I would say, you know, a minimum of six months, ideally a year, the security clearance process is not supposed to be punitive, it's supposed to be predictive. So what that means is, you know, just because you made a mistake previously doesn't necessarily mean that your clearance is going to be denied or revoked because of it. If you can show that it's not going to happen again, if on the other hand, you haven't done anything and you've sort of sat on your hands and said, well, I don't need help. Or, you know, I'm just going to kind of phone it in and make a a half-hearted attempt to get help. That's not really going to cut it. And so then when we come back to this predictive assessment, well, yeah, then it starts to look like maybe there is a chance of it happening again. So most of the time it's actually not that it's not, you know that the the person has gotten treatment, it's that, you know, they were just kind of a drunk idiot and, you know, they're still a drunk idiot. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's a different a different scenario.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.